Hello and welcome, Word Nerds, to DIY MFA Radio, the show that will help you write more, write better, write smarter. I'm Gabriela Pereira, instigator of DIY MFA and your host for this podcast. Now let's talk writing. Hey, y'all, Lori here, and welcome back to DIY MFA Radio. In case we haven't met yet, I am podcast producer, operations maven, and chaos coordinator at DIY MFA. If you've been listening along, you may remember that Gabriella recently passed the baton to me to start co-hosting episodes of the show. Well, we finally made it. This is my first episode hosting, and I couldn't be more excited. Before we dive in, our show notes are at DIYMFA.com slash 404, because it's episode 404. Also, if you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe on Apple, Google, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, you know, all of the places where you might listen to a podcast, and please leave us a review. This will help other word nerds out there discover the show as well. Also, have you signed up to be a DIY MFA Radio Insider yet? This is an exciting new monthly newsletter, especially for our podcast listeners. Every month, you'll get an email from me with recaps of the most recent episodes, a curated listening list of episodes on a particular theme, and other fun goodies we only share via email. Best of all, it's free to join. The theme for April is picture books, and you can become an insider by signing up with your email at diymfa.com slash insiders. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing Jody Hadlock. Now, just before we started this call, Jody and I both found out that we were born at the same town in the same hospital, Tulsa, and her great-grandparents actually lived in the town that I live in now, so that was a pretty cool connection. But beyond that, Jody studied journalism and was a television news reporter and anchor serving her community in South Carolina as well as Texas. In addition to writing, her other passion is advocating for people with special needs. For several years, Jody served on the board of directors of North Texas Special Needs Assistance Partners, SNAP, a nonprofit dedicated to ensuring adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities live the fullest lives possible in their communities. Jody is just about to release her debut historical novel, The Lives of Diamond Bessie, which is a true crime exploration of the burgeoning women's rights movement set in America in the late 1800s. Now pull up a seat with the beverage of your choice, break out that pen and paper, and get ready to learn a ton. Let's get going. Welcome to the show, Jody. It is so great to have you here today. Thank you so much. I am so happy to be here, and I'm very honored. I really am, and it's nice to meet you, Lori. Uh, well, we love having debut authors on the show, so we are excited to get to talk to you and talk about your book and thank you learn more about your process. So let's go ahead and dive on in. The first thing I wanted to ask, what is the story behind the story? Where did you get the idea for this novel? Well, I'd always wanted to write a novel. Uh, of course, I think most writers, you know, from childhood, that's their dream. But I never knew what I wanted to write, what I wanted to write about, what I wanted to say. I really didn't have any ideas. And of course, when, after college, I knew I needed to make a living and I love writing. So I became a broadcast journalist, which I really enjoyed. But I always had it in the back of my mind uh, that I really wanted to be a novelist. And when my husband and I were dating, 
and this is years ago, <laughs> this has been a long journey. We went to East Texas, that's where he's from, from a little town called Marshall to meet his parents. And then we took a little side trip over to Jefferson, which is about 20 miles north of Marshall. And we both love history. So we went to the Historical Museum in Jefferson. And I'll never forget, it's imprinted on my brain that there was this display case that had a full page newspaper article and had a picture, a drawing really of Abe and Bessie, the main characters. And it was in a Dallas paper in the 1930s about a story that had happened about 60 years earlier in a small town three hours away. And I had two thoughts. One of them was, why was this paper interested, you know, so long after this story? Why was there still interest in this? And then I had another thought, but would actually don't want to give it away because I don't want to give away the plot. So I had those two thoughts and I was immediately intrigued. It was like something just that light bulb went on my head. And I just at the time I was working in Charleston, South Carolina at the CBS affiliate uh, TV station there. And this was actually this. I'm really kind of embarrassed to tell you how long ago this was. <laughs> this was in the 90s. So this is before the, you know, really the Internet. And so I was living in Charleston and I made a promise to myself and when I moved back to Texas that I would look into the story and determine if it would be a good novel. So it took me two years to get back. Um, I was in Charleston, got a job anchoring the news um, at the Fox station in San Antonio. So when I made it back to Texas, I immediately started working, doing research. And for two years, I did research. And very quickly, I knew that this would be a good novel because everything I found out, I was it was just fascinating. But when you start writing, especially a historical novel, you don't really realize how much research you need until you actually do it. Mm-hmm. Now that I know, I'll be much better prepared for my second book. But that's that was the inspiration behind it. And I was just immediately intrigued, hooked, and it never let go of me. And it's been an incredibly long journey. But I can tell you that now that I'm getting to this point, that it's well worth it. Oh, wow. That is so interesting. I was really wondering where you found the inspiration for this. I mean, because it's such a, a tiny nugget. And so I was wondering how you took that nugget and, you know, kind of played with it, how you expanded it into a full story, like what parts you couldn't get from the historical record. So how you knew how to flesh things out. That was, yeah, a very long <laughs> uh, learning <laughs> process for me, because I have to say, and I say this for a lot of you know your listeners, that I didn't have a clue what I was doing. I knew that I wanted to write a novel, and I read voraciously and always have, but when it's different, when you sit down to write, <laughs> and it was a story that I needed to tell. This is the first novel about Diamond Bessie. This is a well-known story in East East Texas, Northeast Texas. Mm-hmm. There's the town there does a play about her that they've done every year since 1955. They do it during their annual pilgrimage festival the first weekend of uh, May. And I'm going to do a book launch party there this year. There have been songs written about her, nonfiction books, but there'd never been a novel. Wow. And so this is the first one. And I just 
like what's been said that if there's a book that you want to read and it hasn't been written yet, you you write it. That's exactly what I did. And there wasn't a lot known about Bessie before the main event. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So the first part is very much fictionalized. I mean, there are factual things like is where she was born, where she was raised, but there wasn't a lot known about her. So that took a lot of um, not just research into 19th century life, but also just, well, you know, this is not a secret. She was a prostitute. Mm-hmm. So why does a woman become a prostitute at that time? What was life like for a prostitute? And these are people that there's not a lot on the record about them. And one of my most fascinating finds was I read three memoirs of three different uh, 19th century prostitutes, and they are fascinating. Oh, yeah, I was definitely, full disclosure, I'm still reading the book, but I am totally hooked. I need Gabriella to let me off the hook for work for a few days just so I can sit down and finish reading it because it Mm -hmm. is so good. But yeah, that was something that I was wondering about when I've been reading the beginning part where she's become a prostitute. I mean, your depictions of what is going on in the, what they're called, comfort homes, right? The the brothels, the the, the parlor houses. Yes. (laughs) I mean, it's so vivid and accurate. I was really wondering where you'd come up with a lot of that information. It was the memoirs. And what's interesting, though, of course, this is toward the end of, the, end of their lives that they wrote these memoirs. So mm-hmm. it's in the early 20th century. But they, it wasn't like they wrote it and then they easily found a publisher because it was so taboo to talk about oh, prostitution and this topic. And to, oh my gosh, to publish a memoir from a prostitute? Are you crazy? So <laughs> it's interesting the journey that the memoirs that I read and then the, the back history of those because one of them, she had to self-publish it. Um, another one was published in 1919, and it caused such a scandal, it led to a lawsuit against the publisher. The publisher and the president were each fined $1,000. This is back in, well, 1920, so a long time ago. That was a lot of money. And then they eventually were successful. But because of that memoir, Madeline, an autobiography, was withdrawn from circulation, and it wasn't seen again for about 70 years. Wow. So I'm really grateful that those women were fortuitous enough to write their stories. And even though most of them weren't published until after their deaths or they were pulled from circulation, we have a personal account, a few, that of what life was really like for them. So I'm just curious because I've got a background in history as well. So I'm super interested in the research pro- process and you know, the, the sources, I mean, what, aside from the memoirs, what other sources did you use uh, as you're doing your research for this? Yes, I probably have, you know, I should count it up. When, when I first started, like I said, I had no clue. And when you're researching out of your time period, especially, you know, more than a hundred years ago, I had every single page of my book, there was some research done. I mean, like you can't mention that she used the telephone because it hadn't been invented yet or what. I mean, every detail in there, I'm sure I made a mistake or two, but I discovered that I love research. And if I had could choose another life, it would be, you know, be a researcher. I think it, I just absolutely, I found that I loved it. And like I said, I started researching this in the 90s before the internet. Mm-hmm. So I was going to the library and making an interlibrary loan request for the newspapers 
from the cities. I knew that she had been in Cincinnati and Chicago and knew that she was from somewhere in New York. So I started requesting the microfilm. And so I'd have to wait for it to arrive at the library. And then I had a certain amount of time where I could look at it. And I would spend hours on the weekends because I worked Monday through Friday doing the news. And then I would spend literally all weekend in front of the microfilm reader going through page by page to learn as much as I could as far as the facts. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there are two different parts. There's the, you know, the facts and then they're having to flesh out, you know, the fictional part. So I was going through court records, numerous newspapers, and then reading books about life in the 19th century. Basically, I just, anything I could get my hands on that I thought would help me in being able to write the story and for it to be an accurate reflection of what life was like back then, and especially for a prostitute, for a woman in the evening. So I, I did that. And I probably, I, I know I have at least a hundred sources. They're actually on my website at jodyhadlock.com. I have a bibliography and I keep adding to it. And that's another thing I found out when I was writing. And this, um, I think this is probably some good advice that you can research something to death. Mm-hmm. At some point you have to start writing. You can't get so lost in the research that you never start writing because you're never, there's always going to be something to research. I found. So I did all the research and then start, you start writing. I still found I needed to do more research. And that was surprising to me that I thought it would break it up into, okay, this is the research phase. And then this is the writing phase. And this is the editing phase. And they kind of, you know, blurred together. Uh, which was interesting to me. And now this is my first book. It was such a learning process. When I start working on my second one, which I've been researching, I know so much more about what to do. It'll be so much easier. Yeah, I was wondering if you did all the research and then you started to write or if you kind of did when as you researched as you went. I imagined that you'd probably would have had to go make a few extra trips back to the library at certain points. <laughs> well. I did one. I also traveled. Every, I wanted to mm. see every place that she had been at. And unfortunately, because it had happened so long ago, I think every building was gone. Mm. That was disappointing that I couldn't. I mean, real, literally every building was gone. <laughs> but it was good to see the like when she lived in Cincinnati and Chicago and New Orleans. So it's good to see those places. And of course, being, you know, living in Texas and my husband being from East Texas, that was really easy to um you know, as far as that research. But this is what happened. And I, it's kind of embarrassing to admit, but (laughs) what happened was I did research for two years and I did an outline. And then I remember sitting down at my computer and I just froze. I thought, oh my gosh, I got to write this. I hadn't gone through that process, that creative process. I realize now, I had been so focused on research and doing the outline, you know, and doing all these steps. And I literally sat there for a while and then came back the next day and I finally started writing. But the problem that I had was that I didn't have the right point of view. Mm. See, um, there's a reason why it's called The Lives of Diamond Bestie. And I don't want to give away everything because I know some readers, early readers that I've had, they don't want to know the whole story about the way I structured it. So for a long time, when you don't have the right point of view, it is really, really hard to write it. 
And it took me a long time. And I actually had started working with an editor and she challenged me to write it a certain way. And that's what I ended up doing. So this is in the 90s. And then I actually moved to the D.C. area to work for a nonprofit there. So I got out of journalism and I was raising my son. He has special needs. I adopted him from Romania in 1999. So I was so focused on that. I set aside my writing for a long time and then came back to it in 2014. And that's when somebody I started working with an editor because I really, really, really wanted to get, you know, I was just really disappointed in myself that I hadn't done what I wanted to do ever since I was young. And so it, that really helped me what was working with a freelance editor as far as kind of guiding me. And because really for me, I mean, I, I, <laughs> I was so bad. <laughs> My writing, I think, was horrible in the first draft. And it took me multiple drafts. It was a lot of work. And I just pushed through it because I wanted it that much. And that's that's just amazing that you set it aside for so long. And it, I guess, was just the story that you were meant to write because you came back to it and you did it. Well, it's really astonishing that no one else had written a novel. And there are other I know of at least two other women who, one who was about to start writing her novel, she'd done some research and she found out that about my book and I had just signed with my publisher, Spark Press. So I haven't heard, you know, if she's done anything with it and there was somebody else. And when I was doing my research, actually, it was interesting. I came across a letter from somebody who had written to the Chamber of Commerce, you know, in Jefferson wanting to know information about Diamond Bessie. And that was back in the, I think that letter was from the 80s. So it's actually astonishing that not just that, that just that it took me that long, <laughs> but that no one else beat me to it. Wow. That's crazy. I mean, I wonder if we'll suddenly see multiple books about Diamond well, Bessie. We'll see. <laughs> but at least mine is since she was a real person, you know, and I don't know what you believe about the afterlife and everything, mm-hmm. but you know, I feel like her spirit is with me and I think she's happy with what I'm doing. Well, it's good to feel good about what you're doing and you know, kind of lets you know that you're doing what you should be doing. I think we definitely get hints like that. Yes. Now, before we leave the research process, do you have any tips for people on how to know when to call it quits with the research and get to writing? Because it's such a thing, the research rabbit hole. And it's a great form of procrastination to where you feel like you're you know, doing something productive. And how do you know, like, okay, we got to get to drafting. Yes, that's a really good question. And actually, I listened to, if you're familiar with Hillary Mantel, her Wolf Hall trilogy, which is just absolutely amazing. She won the Man Booker Prize a couple times. But I was listening to a talk that she gave. It was a recording. And somebody had asked her that question. And she said, when you can see and hear and feel that time period, you know you're ready. And that's really, you need to feel comfortable enough confident, I guess I should say confident enough in the research that you've done, that you've immersed yourself in it enough that you are confident to write about that period and then dive in. And like I said, with me, I still needed to do research. So that, and I don't know, Hillary Mantel didn't address that in in the talk that she gave that I listened to, but I suspect that that happens frequently where 
you still need to do some research. But you do, I think you just need to ask yourself, am I procrastinating? Mm -hmm. And really be honest with yourself and be confident to take that next step to actually put, you know, pen to paper. That's really good advice because I... I'm working on a project where I'm going to be doing a bit of research. And so it's kind of like, all right, I know I'm going to have to pull the plug at some point and start writing. So thank you. That helps me. Okay. Good. (laughs) One other thing I was wondering, I mean, do you have any advice for how to fictionalize some of those things that, you know, you can't know for certain? I mean, you kind of touched on this about how you fictionalized a lot of the beginning parts of the story. I mean, do you have any specific advice? Like how do you write dialogue for somebody that you know you're not there for the conversation there's not an accurate record of that conversation how do you weave that together yeah well yes luckily for me i enjoy writing dialogue <laughs> and i think because of my background in broadcast journalism you were supposed to write in a conversational style mm-hmm. and so that i think helped me with writing dialogue but yeah it is kind of cuz you're sitting there and you're having to be in these different thinking okay well what would Bessie say? What would Abe say? You know, the interaction and make it sound natural. And even though I enjoy writing dialogue, that doesn't mean that I was good when I first started writing dialogue. It was a a long process. And I really, you know, what they say about writing is rewriting. That is so true. I lost count of the number of drafts I went through. And as far as fictionalizing because not much was known about Bessie's life, especially until she became a, a prostitute, that came from my research because it opens in Buffalo, New York with her at, a, at one of the what were called the Magdalene Laundries, you know, a convent for fallen women. And just from research, I made a, you know, a conscious decision as far as plot wise what's going to be interesting to grab the reader and make them want to keep reading this story. So that was just, yeah, like I said, just a conscious decision of, I guess, plot wise. And then I also, though, found memoirs of some women who were in the Magdalene Laundries. So the experience that I describe at the beginning is very accurate. And I don't want to beat on, you know, that because I'm actually an adult convert to Catholicism. So I'm mm-hmm. I'm Catholic and I'm, you know, I didn't intend to like beat up on, you know, Catholic convents. It's just, but, you know, it's a fact that there were these Magdalene laundries and they could be quite horrific places. Yeah, that was kind of surprising to me to read about what happened. I mean, it's it's in the first few pages where she's sent into isolation and winds up going into labor while she's locked in the basement or almost called it a dungeon, but that's what it seemed like. Yeah. Yeah. It was pretty much like a dungeon and those things actually did happen. So mine is fictionalized. The memoirs that I read of of those women, I made up, you know, Bessie's situation, but it was grounded in in fact. Hmm. I'm glad that that doesn't happen so much anymore. Yes. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) that was just horrible uh, what happened. So it was really interesting for me as I was reading to see how she shifted from being at this convent to becoming a prostitute to getting involved in the women's rights movement. I mean, I know that that is factually what happened. And how did you keep that progression going in your story? 
it's just and I never and initially I didn't consciously say I'm going to include the women's rights movement when I was doing my research. And, you know, I knew a little bit about the history, but I learned a lot more. And there's a, a scene where Bessie attends a speech given by Susan B. Anthony, mm-hmm. which actually happened. Susan B. Anthony gave a very famous lecture uh, the Sunday Dime Lecture in Chicago was extremely popular. She was very famous then in the 18, this is in 1875, and she gave a talk on social purity, basically about prostitution and also drinking. There were, you know, a few issues involved there, but her large topic was on prostitution, which was very taboo to talk about in public, especially from a woman. And it was referred to as the great social evil. And so when I discovered that she had given this talk in Chicago at the time that Bessie lived there and she was a prostitute and Susan B. Anthony was talking about this topic, I thought, wow, I have to use this. So that's where that chapter came from. And that's really kind of what got me into you know, one of the characters, one of the demi-mondanes is what they also call them, I guess, a, a more elegant term for prostitute. Because she Bessie worked at the first class parlor houses, not the lower um, brothels. Mm-hmm. So she was in a, you know, a nice place for um, a woman in, in that occupation. So it just made sense for me to have one of the characters. And it's really, I didn't actually have Bessie involved in the women's rights movement so much as like she attends the lecture by Susan B. Anthony and there's another woman at the house who is pretty, I guess, an activist, pretty vocal. Mm -hmm. So I did it where that way for Bessie, it just ended up being the way that I thought that it should be handled in the book. That answers one of the questions that I had was how you sort of wove in the history of the early women's rights movement into this larger tale. But I mean, you clearly had to do additional research aside from what you did for Bessie. I mean, I think you included the great Chicago fire. That was part of it, right? Yeah, she was there. And then the women's rights movement. Mm, Yeah, I wanted it to be in the context of what was going on in society at that time. I guess, you know, when I read, especially historical fiction, I like to learn things. I want to be engaged in the story, but also I love learning things. And so I, you know, I like reading a lot of historical fiction, obviously, (laughs) since I'm writing it. And I love history. So I like to see fictional stories that are set in the context of what is going on in society at the time. And you know, it just really was really organic. It's just as as my story evolved. And that's the other thing is that the story from the first draft to now evolved so much. And uh, it was really fascinating now that I look back on it as far as seeing the process that I went through that I had to go through to get to where I am now. Because, I, you know, it took me I started writing this in 2014 and here it is 2022. <laughs> you know, it's a long time, but I looking back I realized I needed to go through that all that to get to this point to have what I think is a a good quality product, the book. Yeah, and cuz context just is so much 
so much a part of anything that happens. You know, you can't really talk about what happened 50 years ago without bringing in the larger social context, the larger political context. I mean, that definitely influences our decisions. And especially when you're writing about a real person, mm-hmm. and you definitely have to take that into consideration instead of making as much up. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, I really enjoy it. So I'm actually, I'm looking forward to writing my my next novel, even though there's always a little bit of trepidation of, you know, can I do this again? <laughs> <laughs> I believe in you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, now I want to, switch gears a little bit and talk about narrative voice. You chose a first person narrator, Bessie, as opposed to a third person narrator. Can you give any insight as to why you made that decision when writing about a real historical person as opposed to writing it more of like a a history and that the distant third person? I like the intimacy of first person. And this, quite honestly, was largely a gut feeling. Hmm. When this editor, Bridget Boland, who's wonderful. She actually, she lives in the Chicago area. She's the one who challenged me to write it from a certain way. And it just felt natural to write it in first person to really get into Bessie's shoes. Before I mentioned that I didn't have the right point of view a long time ago. That was when I was trying to write it in third person. Okay. And from a different character's perspective, and it never worked. So when I decided to try writing it in first person, it just flowed so much better that I knew that I just instinctively knew that I was doing it the right way, the way that I felt was would best tell the story. That's interesting. And then, you know, you've already mentioned, like, you felt like you were channeling Bessie or that she it was with you when you were writing that. Well, that and something interesting happened. I don't know if you've ever heard or talked about or that about characters showing up because that happened with me. (laughs) I was at my desk writing and I was going, I don't know if you've gotten to the part where Ed Levines is um, introduced. I don't believe so. Okay. Well, When I was thinking about her and what her role would be in the book, Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden I felt this very, I had this very strong feeling, and I actually physically turned around in my office to see who was behind me, and I said, okay, Edla, I guess you're going to be pretty prominent. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. (laughs) It was really freaky, and... So if anybody says, you know, that about, talks about characters showing up, it is a real thing. <laughs> wow. That is so interesting. I mean, I hadn't actually heard about that. And they're pretty predominantly in, in the second half of the book. Wow. Well, looks like I know I'm going to be clearing off my calendar <laughs> for the rest of the afternoon. I'm, I'm going to be reading The Lives of Diamond Bessie. <laughs> well, I hope you enjoy it. Uh, I have thoroughly enjoyed it so far. It's been one of those wanting to just completely dive in and get involved, but then also, uh, I know I need to do that. I've got that deadline coming up too. So, (laughs) yeah, no, I I completely understand. And, you know, I also want to point out um, the lives of Diamond Bessie is not straight historical fiction. It crosses genres. That's what Kirkus Reviews said, called it a 
genre-bending debut novel. So it's historical fiction w- with mystery, but it's more of a why done it than a who done it, and it has paranormal elements. Okay, I mean, was that an intentional choice on your part, or just kind of how things unfolded? Just really organic, really. It just the way the story evolved and the way that it, the best way that for it to be told. So no, I didn't. When I started writing, I thought it would just be you know straight historical fiction, but sometimes in the way a story evolves, then um, you need to be open to that. I guess is what I would say that don't put yourself in this box, you know, let yourself be open to when you're writing. If there's an, an element, don't fight it. Let it get into your work because it can make it better. And, mm-hmm. I, and on the opposite of that, don't force something in. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's really important. I'm like, I didn't force the women's rights movement in there. That evolved. I think it makes the book more interesting, more engaging to have that in there. And I didn't, but I didn't set out like, oh, well, I you know, really want to get this across. I think that can come off as kind of forced if you do it that way. That's really interesting. I mean, because you hear often about, you know, when you sit down to write, kind of know what kind of story you're wanting to tell and then also develop your outline. But then I feel like at a certain point that can become confining if you're just so dead set on, no, this is my outline. This is the kind of story I'm wanting to write. So I love hearing that, that go with the flow. Definitely. Because I did have an outline Mm -hmm. and that went out the window. (laughs) (laughs) I think I have a copy of it somewhere and I I should take a look at it just, (laughs) just to laugh. Because, yeah, you really and and, then, you know, there's all that talk about whether you're a pantser or not, you know, mm-hmm. water pantser. And it really just got it really just depends on the individual writer. And I guess some kind of a combination. I kind of like to plan it out. But then I want to go with the flow and just see where the story takes me. Mm-hmm. And eventually it works. <laughs> I'll say that if you if you keep at it, eventually it works. Well, good. I'm glad to hear that because, you know, there have been a couple of projects that I have outlined. And it was like, by the time I was done outlining, the story was just, it was dead to me. I was like, I'm, I'm done with it. So I guess that wasn't a story that I was meant to write, but at the same time, it just, it was frustrating that I spent that time outlining. <laughs> yeah. You don't want to quench the creativity. Mm-hmm. So that's what, you know, cause I found like, cause I was trying to separate things, you know, into those little boxes of research, writing, editing, you know, and then they really just kind of flow and, you might go back and forth and you really need to let yourself do that, I think. Well, great. That is good to hear. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think you and I could talk all day about the research process, the writing process, but in the interest of both of our writing and my reading time, your writing time, we need to go ahead and start wrapping things up. So tell us what is next for you? You've mentioned that you're working on another novel. What can you tell us about it? Yes, um, this is actually a story that I found when I was researching Diamond Bessie, mm-hmm. a woman who, uh, so obviously she lived in the same time period. Her name is uh, Lucy Holcomb Pickens. But what's interesting about as far as being open and not limiting yourself or you know boxing yourself in, I thought I would write a novel about this one woman. She was known as the Queen of the Confederacy. Hmm. 
And her husband, she married an older man who, in 1858, who became U.S. ambassador to Russia. And so they went over to Russia. And she was um, a darling of the Russian court. Tsar Alexander II loved her and his wife. And then they came back on the eve of the Civil War, where Lucy's husband became the secession governor of South Carolina. And when they were in Russia, Lucy, I read somewhere that she abhorred serfdom. She thought that serfdom was just a horrible system, yet she came back and defended slavery. And I thought, wow, that's just fascinating. So I started researching, and I initially thought that one of the other characters would be Tsar Alexander II. But the more research that I did, I discovered that instead of him, that it should be someone else. And I don't want to give too much away. So I will have two women as main characters. And that changed because of being open in my research and realizing that, hmm, this is really, really interesting. This is more fascinating than what's over here. So that's what I'm working on. I have no idea how long it'll take because quite honestly, right now I'm so focused on the lives of Diamond Bessie, getting that out into the world, you know, and of course every writer wants to have as many readers as possible. You want your book to be read. So I'm so focused on that. But this summer I want to switch gears and and really start focusing on, on my second novel. That sounds great. I can't wait to read that. You mentioned her name. And I was like, that sounds familiar somehow. Yeah. Google her. You'll see a lot about her. I mean, she was pretty well known in her time. She's largely forgotten today. Yeah. I'm trying to remember where it is that I even heard the name because I never actually took a civil war history class in all of my years. So (laughs) I never heard of her until I stumbled onto her name when I was researching Diamond Bessie. You know, I've read that a lot about other historical fiction authors that like their next book, they'll say that, you know, they they learned about their next story while researching their current one. Mm. I think that is pretty common. Well, I almost hate to ask this last question, but it's what we always close every single episode of DIY MFA Radio with is what's your number one tip for writers? You've given us so many great nuggets already, but what is your number one tip for writers? I would say, and thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> you know, it is. I don't want it to sound, you know, trite, but it's tough and you have to work through the hard parts. I mean, you can't give up. On the eve of my first book being published, there were so many times that I sat at my computer and thought, why can't I do this? Why can't I get this? What am I doing wrong? You know, why? And I would put my head on my desk and just you know, want to cry, like, because I'd wanted this so much. And I was like, why am I not getting this? And I worked through it. I just, I never gave up. And I went through draft after draft. I'm a little bit older, so I could afford to work with a freelance editor. That's what I needed. I know there are people out there that can sit down and they may not need to work with an editor, which is great. More power to you. (laughs) But I would say, you know, if you're struggling to work through it, hmm. stick with it. 
and look for outside help if you need it. If you can afford it or have a writing group, we're all friends and the writing community is wonderful. So I would say take advantage of that. And really like with DIY MFA, I think it's a phenomenal thing, you know, to be around, to have something like DIY MFA, what Gabriella has done. So I, you know, I think you just can't sit by yourself in your office and then just give up. You just, you have to work through it. Oh, that is such great advice. Thank you so much, Jody, And thank you so much for being here today. I've had a blast talking to you. Oh, thank you. I'm so honored to be here. And I'm sorry if I ran on too long with my answers. But when you start talking, all of a sudden, you just like, I'm like a faucet. <laughs> oh, no, not at all. That's what the show's all about is giving uh, writers advice from people who have been there and, and done that. So thank you so much. I know our listeners are going to learn a ton from this episode. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you so much, Word Nerds, for being here today. I will catch you on the flip side. Thank you.